talk about like what's what is what do we mean by an obscure film? Because to me, a lot of these films are not at all obscure, not at all. No, but people are talking about the context of their own peer group, and I think age does have a lot to do with it. For sure, yeah. And actually, now thinking about it, I think I was surprised, and clearly, you know, I'm a bit, I guess, more a bit more of a cinephile than some people mm-hmm. of my generation, obviously, so I might know s- some things that others don't, mm-hmm. film-wise. But uh, a few years ago in New York at some kind of, like, house party, there was a girl, I don't think she was much younger than me, but it might be, like, mm-hmm. a few years younger. And, and she, without any irony, said, I remember uh, when talking to her about movies, that she doesn't watch anything before something like right uh, that's shot before 1990 i had that with students they'd never seen any old films and they were in fil- oh, no, a film but that's program like the <laughs> but it was like she, it like, was almost like a point of pride yeah. she didn't feel bad about it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's a thing it's a real thing i mean when i was in wanting to be a film student when i was young the point of pride was you wanted to know everything all the old film films it was mm-hmm. totally different but now I, I got used to being in a film program where same kind of thing, point of pride. I don't watch black and white. I won't go before <laughs> the year X. And I would be like, you're a film. Imagine going like going to study music and saying, I proudly don't know any music. <laughs> you would Reich. be thrown out of the program. <laughs> that just wouldn't be allowed. You know, so it's a crazy phenomenon. Oh, wait, I, I got confused because I think the, the young woman I was talking, mm-hmm. I, I don't think she was a film student. That, oh, I'm just that, talking that, about that, my that students. Is, no, I know you yeah, just yeah, met but a woman. Point, but. Yeah, but that's even worse. Oh, it's way that's worse. like a random girl and your film students yes. a point of pride for them not to watch anything. Yeah. How does that work? Exactly. Well, you know, I want to go work in Hollywood and I'm just like, it doesn't matter. That most of the great directors know everything. You ask the Coen brothers, ask, you know, ask Coppola, ask Scorsese, ask, you know, name a famous filmmaker who's who's good. They know everything. They could teach a film history class right now. It's just, but you, I had to make whole spiels every time because I ran into this more and more every year. It got worse every year, I swear to God. Well, I don't want to be like some kind of curmudgeon complaining, but that, that's interesting. So that's why the whole concept of Hidden Gem is very good. <laughs> it's very odd. <laughs> and, and But on the other hand, there are films that are so obscure, I've never heard of them ever. So, you know, mm-hmm. you, it's a real mix. <sighs> I forgot why. That was a few episodes ago, more than a few episodes ago, might be a month ago. We were just thinking what we've been poten- p- potentially missing out on. And that's yes. how I thought, oh, I-, I would like to know some hidden gems. But then it's clearly so, <laughs> so like relative that I don't know if it's going to be of use to like everyone. Oh, I think I, there's been a lot of enthusiasm. I've had people saying, oh my God, I want to go through this whole list. I mean, I think I like the informality of it. And that's how we generated it. Just for, so everyone knows we, we threw out a call to our, obviously the podcast subscribers and our friends on Facebook, et cetera. And, and just got an overwhelming response. There were so many, it went on and on for, I forget how many, how many, how many weeks ago I put it up, but it kept getting added to, I had to keep finalizing and finalizing again. And we just got this huge, so many that my initial plan was we could read them aloud uh, on the show. And there's just too many. There's just zillions of them. So, you know, I've tried to have most of my picks. And we'll see how many I even we even get to. But um, yeah. overlap with recommendations that people also gave. So we'd cover more of them anyway. But also we'll just post a list. Absolutely. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna post the list, you know. And I've seen others, you know, since we put ours up, I saw it, it developed this little mini, this little mini phenomena where other people started doing it on their site, saying, "I've seen others doing this." What you know? So other people were generating their great obscure films or hidden gems lists. So it got to be a little thing for a while there, and it was very cool. I mean, there's a lot of these films actually that I looked up. Couldn't do them all because there's so many, but that I really want to see now. So there's a lot of great. <laughs> choices there and they're from every every possible category of film like true cult films that maybe very few people do know super obscure indies super well-known indies and art house films um you know films from all over the world there's films that i consider major classics that are on the list which is scary because that makes it sound like well they're not considered such classics they're they're obscure um so anyway we've got it's just a wild eclectic bunch of films that we've got listed here I mean, it actually began for me many, many years ago. I was writing, still writing for Exile, and I wrote um, under the title Great Obscure Films Number 1. I wrote about a movie called um, A New Leaf, which is written directed by Elaine May and stars Walter Matthau. Um, and it's a 70s film. I'm forgetting exactly what year, mid-70s, I think. And nobody had heard of it. And I went on and on about what a great kind of late entry into screwball comedy, how hilarious, how wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And I got some other people to, to, to watch it based on that. And I wound up with a little group of, of fans that I know now. But I, I knew no one who had ever heard of this film or knew this film. Um, so it, it can pay nice dividends. You, you get your little crowd gathered around a film that, that you really loved. And I meant to keep going. I meant it to be Great Obscure Films, number two, three, four, up to 50. And I never wrote another one. So there was only one, one that I ever wrote for in honor of A New Leaf. I can probably find it and link to it because yeah, you can look it up. Genesis. Yeah, <laughs> that's the genesis of the idea. Yeah, so yeah. If you look up Eileen Jones plus Great Obscure Films or A New Leaf, it'll come up and you can read it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what started it for me many many years ago. And I'm, periodically, I would ask people, and people would come up with things. So now, now we've each got our short list of Genie and I um, that we can see how many of these we can get through. I don't even know if we'll have time, but um, you want to choose one of Genie. Okay, I want to start with the one of my hidden gems. It's a film called um, La Grande Bouffe or La Grande Abufata, which uh, it's a 1973 kind of French-Italian film by Marco Ferreri. And uh, let's see, what's the English? There should be like a good English translation. I don't know. There actually, no one did. I think in English, it's the grand, the grand bouffe. Oh, I read a bad one that was something like the the big, the big meal, the big dinner, the big eat. <laughs> That's a direct kind of translation. It sounds somehow bad, so I guess they kept the yeah, they the kept French. the original. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's basically the big, yeah, big, big eating. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, again, I I was reminded of it because some. Someone, um, that's why I was looking uh, at our list. Someone on Facebook did name it. Oh, it's, I've got it. It's name. Jessica Parsons named it. Okay, I agree with Jessica, and it's good that uh, I was reminded of it because I uh, I watched this film a number of times. For the first time, I watched it, I don't know, probably pretty early. I was like 15 or something and, and kind of like discovering Marco Ferrari for myself. And I feel like in general, Marco Ferrari is a very kind of under, mm, not a hidden gem director. Obviously, he was known, but uh, could have been more appreciated because I think he is hilarious and mm-hmm. funny and at the same time, pretty, uh, pretty profound. And this specific film, um, I think it clearly is somewhat famous but has a vibe of a hidden gem because when i asked around even i don't know even you eileen or like Mm -hmm. uh some kind of cinephiles friends from back in the day frequently no one no one heard of it but again i don't know it might be just my personal experience 
and it's in reality it is super famous but basically the film um uh is about kind of like consumer it's just like consumer society mm-hmm. but i think the criticism of consumer society that Ferrari did in early 70s, even more relevant now. I mean, it was obviously right relevant, I guess, for Western Europe back then. But um, I don't know, definitely not, I guess, for me growing up in Russia with some sort of scarcity. But um, now it's super relevant. And uh, the idea is that uh, for bourgeois uh, friends who actually also play themselves, like Marcello Mastrani plays basically Marcello Mastrani mm-hmm. and his name is Marcello in the film and then Ugo Tanyats I think is Ugo, Michel Piccoli is Michel so it has this like weird kind of semi-documentary feel to it because no one is really like play- like no one actually in character, they're just like playing themselves and um, there's four friends, uh, who's the fourth one I should say, Philippe Noiré mm-hmm. do you know him? No. Anyway, they're all famous, really mm-hmm. famous actors uh, they are clearly tired of kind of consumer, uh, their consumer existence, their life. And uh, they, uh, it's it's not clear when you start watching. So it's like a, just a hilarious kind of pretty dark satire. Uh, but they go um, somewhere outside of Paris to like a countryside. Uh, I think it's someone's house. So it's a rented house, a pretty grand house. And one of them is a cook. I think uh, it's might be like a chef. I think Michelle Piccoli playing a chef. Mm-hmm. And and what's happening there <laughs> during like two, I think it's a pretty long film, maybe over two hours, is that they, it's clear that at some, some, at some point that they're trying to like eat themselves to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds like a pretty, I don't know, almost like a kind of vulgar idea if you just kind of retell it like that, mm-hmm. but it kind of works beautifully and it's really dark and scary. And then the process of uh, just to quick, I guess, reveal, they sort of actually succeed in this. So that's what <laughs> right. dark. And so it's not like a joke. It's not just like some kind of like <laughs> excess, excessive party or something like that. They, they actually sort of successfully ending their lives that way. And in the process of that, they try to invite some women over and also like involve them in this kind of feast that is pretty clearly like suicidal <laughs> suicidal one sometimes they succeed with those women some of them leave anyway and it's it's kind of pretty like a uh, phantasmagoric mm-hmm. uh, very <laughs> bright but very dark film that's i guess reminds you a little bit of fellini or something like satiricon but more in day mm-hmm. i don't know there's like it's clearly very excessive but um but it, but i i think it's also a hidden gem because how weirdly relevant it is mm-hmm. now even more so like 50 years later basically i mean i think i definitely mentioned it before yes, to you i remember it did you check it out no i still haven't seen i read a little about it but i haven't seen it yet i don't know there's something very <laughs> there's something very close home i think to being whatever it's uh it was shot in france like early 70s france by an italian guy who I think, I'm not sure he was, Marco Ferreri was like a card-carrying communist, mm-hmm. but something close to that. So you mm-hmm. can kind of understand his point of view. Right, right. And in America now, yeah, it's just such so much abundance. And it's like, you kind of like want to <laughs> either <laughs> go ascetic or uh-huh. just almost, I, I can kind of understand the feeling or like kill yourself with this abundance because it's already killing you. Right, right. The whole obesity epidemic, diabetes years is horrible, like waste, <laughs> too mm-hmm. much clothes, too much this, too much exhaust fumes all this and then you know it, you kind of take it up a notch and you're trying to go kind of earlier to live almost <laughs> earlier before we collectively commit suicide as, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as i don't know humanity or western society at least well i'm 
I'm glad you brought it up just because I see a lot of like, you know, just among socialists, there's always generating different like people saying what films are good, you know, politically. Mm -hmm. And this I don't think I've ever seen this mentioned. So this is a good one. It's obscure, at least in this (laughs) among the socialists who have who have generated lists that I've seen. It hasn't been on them. So, uh, yeah, okay. But that's that's Marco Ferrer. Do you do want to take the stage? Yeah, I, I will jump in with the one I, I watched the most recently um, called Slapshot. This was a recommendation of Gary Brecher, a.k.a. John Dolan. Um, I had actually seen this, but many, like decades ago, I, and I didn't remember it very well at all. And it's so good. It's it's now a cult fave. Um, I guess it didn't do all that well when it came out, but it's a big cult fave now. It's a it's a great blue collar comedy. It's about a about a, a completely failing minor league hockey team um, that's based on the the screenwriters. Her name is Nancy Dowd. Her brother Ned Dowd actually played on a minor league hockey team um, called the what was it the the Jamestown Jets, and they were from Jamestown, Pennsylvania. So this team in the movie is mm-hmm. called the Charlestown Chiefs, and again, it's shot on location, like in and around Pennsylvania and kind of central and western New York. So kind of my stomping grounds. And when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I was my father took me to hockey games. So <laughs> everyone went to hockey games when I was uh, growing up um, in this area. So it's, it has real gritty conviction. And it's, it's set in a town where the only factory, it's a 1977 film, and the only factory that the basically employs this whole town is closing, which is going to be the final nail in the coffin of this of this losing hockey team. Um, and so it has this oddly grim, gritty um, backdrop that's really kind of exciting to see. You just can't imagine a movie now that's meant for, you know, popular consumption being this gritty for a comedy. Um, and it's just hilarious for those who, who know it and know, I mean, you're obviously it's, it's, it's ridiculous to even have to spell it out, but I will. It's, it, it stars Paul Newman of all people. And he's great. And Paul Newman was always great playing working class guys. Um, he comes from a, a kind of, he comes from a neighborhood in, uh, outside of, or, or in Cleveland, in and around Cleveland, Ohio is his parents, you know, uh, ran a sporting goods store. He used to play hockey as a kid and he's terrific as this aging hockey player who comes up with the idea of how to sell this team, which is basically appeal to the to the bloodthirst to the crowd so that even if you're losing, as long as you're getting into hockey fights all over the place, um, the crowds will start turning out. And and the key to this is the Hanson brothers, the immortal Hanson brothers, who are three really nerdy looking brothers um, who wear really, really thick glasses and play with cars. They're super young. Um, but they they when they get hit the ice, they're the, they're the most hilarious, gleeful hockey, violent hockey goons that ever lived. And they're just constantly high sticking and slashing in every kind of penalty worthy, violent behavior on the ice. And they become a kind of the kind of key to the popularity of the team. They're hilarious. And they're actually two of the three brothers who inspired this were the Carlson brothers play the Hanson brothers. Um, and they're just, they're just absolutely a scream. It's one of the funniest comedies ever. It's very not woke. So if you can't handle, you know, the pre-woke era of the 70s you should stay away for sure but it's it's really hilarious and it's and it's just so absolutely true to you know to the atmosphere of of these blue collar towns and blue collar life that it's just kind of almost shocking for me to watch it and remember and be like oh my god um just the on location shooting alone is um haunting to me but i but i loved it absolutely loved it so i highly recommend slap shot if you've never seen it 
interesting and it's also like basically very <laughs> whatever has a kind of realistic feel to absolutely it. it's based on the experiences of this brother ned dowd who actually makes a comical appearance in the film as one of the really scary hockey players named ogi ogi and he and he and he comes on and he literally looks like some sort of primate he looks so primitive this guy it's really hilarious but yeah it's all based on his own escapades his own experiences with the carlson brothers so it has that kind of verisimilitude that's that's also fantastic and that you can feel through the whole thing it seems very real very true to life Okay, yeah, I've never, I, I, now I want to see it. I know it's, it's I've very... never heard of it, of it. But you know, it reminded me when you started talking about the pre, um, sort of pre-woke mm. Hollywood of 70s. I definitely found out about this film for you and was very kind of excited mm-hmm. and grateful to you. A while back, I think it might have been Exile. I don't know where you published your like list mm-hmm. of also either Hidden Gems or just a movie you like. I remember Pretty Made, uh, Pretty Maids all in a row. It wasn't on your list now, mm-hmm. but but it really stayed with me. You definitely named it somewhere oh, one day. I'm trying to remember, but okay, yeah. Pretty Maids All in uh-huh. a Row. It's by, I think it's directed, it's definitely early 70s. Okay. And it's like a black comedy yeah. about this very philandering kind of guy, I think, counselor mm-hmm. in a high school. Right, right. Do you remember? And it, I think it's yes. a director, Rajah Vadim, but I guess, I don't know, he, he came to Hollywood mm-hmm. to make it because it's an, it's an American film. And then didn't last and long. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. that's the, I definitely found out it from you. So like almost like you usually got to know more about it. But, uh, but it's really, <laughs> if you can take, again, the very pre-woke, yeah. pre-me too, pre, I don't know, all those things. Pre-sensitivity. <laughs> I, it's it's it, kind of shocking when you're not used to it. I mean, even for it, me, yeah, I'm not yeah, all that woke. A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when like this kind of like a macho behavior uh-huh. towards like a high school student right, right, is totally right. normal, whatever. It's like, well, you have to be able obviously to take that to enjoy the film. Right. But it's, it's really fun. It's like a California film made by a French man. So it's actually an interesting kind of there's something off about it. Uh-huh. It's, it's it's definitely surprising. Right. It's, you know, it's not like a. Again, it's clearly made by like someone like a Hollywood outsider, which makes it more fun. But it's a very California film, so. And I think Rock Hudson plays like the kind of this uh, womanizer <laughs> counselor at, in the, at a high school where uh, I think uh, the whole deal there that like somehow girls get murdered. No one knows who it is, mm-hmm. but he's kind of <laughs> sleeping with many yeah, of them. Many of them. Anyway, okay. I don't want to go further yeah. already. I guess the premise is. <laughs> yeah, the 70s are a real happy hunting ground for, for films because it's right between things. I mean, the studio system has collapsed and you've got this interlude of late 60s, 70s where all these films are still getting pumped out but they're very odd they feel like <laughs> they feel like they don't belong yet to a stable system so you get all this kind of crazy experimentation and wild tones and different different things so it's it's an exciting era i've got i noticed i had a, a, a number of 70s films on my list without having planned on it um yeah. Yeah, but also there's something like 70s are kind of glorified now, I right. guess, for a reason, right? Right, even though a lot of the films nobody's nobody's heard of, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. It's weird. I mean, there's certain, of course, 70s is also considered a great era for filmmaking because, you, again, it was a weird time that allowed all these young up-and-coming filmmakers to have their chance because Hollywood was falling apart. But um, So there's the, all the famous ones that everybody knows, but then there's a, just an awful lot of oddities that um, are really worth checking out. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll definitely go. I mean, in my in my dark lockdown, yeah, <laughs> I'll start going through the list. So that's why I think it's all always where it's almost like therapeutic, right? And helpful to have it, right? Exactly. Uh, close by. Okay, should we? Because yeah, <laughs> I'm ahead. trying to fit in as many as we can. It's, uh, since you were already in the 70s, I think the the next one from my list I want to bring. Uh, well, 69, almost 70s. Mm-hmm. That's the Fellini film. And tell me if it's like totally not hidden gem because I still think even though obviously everyone knows Fellini films this one is somehow less known than many others and I like mm-hmm. it more than even the famous ones satiricon mm-hmm. Fellini well it's the kind of thing that just because Fellini was such a big auteur will get listed in the history books but you're right it's it's not one of the ones that that are going to be the main ones that get talked about it's not like eight and a half no and people don't everyone, watch it I think they're like oh of course satiricon Fellini but did you watch it I don't know I haven't <laughs> no <laughs> Well, exactly. Okay, so then my theory works. Obviously, it's, it's in the history books because of his, like, yeah, tour status. But I think it's worth actually watching. It's either on Prime. It's somewhere on all of those resources, definitely. I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon Prime, even. And and this film, uh, why, why I like it, I mean, I guess initially I came to even be interested to watch it just because I love Petronia's book. Mm-hmm. It's like a really tiny book, which I would recommend almost like reading before you watch a film uh, called Satyricon. It was written um, like first century in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not clear. I mean, it be- believed that Petronius wrote it, who was uh, like this. Yeah, satirist writer. Uh, not much again known about him because of how long ago it was. But uh, in similar vein, why I brought uh, La Grande Bouffe mm-hmm. uh, in, in this list. So Satyricon, I think, is super timely kind of to watch and read. I, I insist uh, that people should read it. It's hilarious to read now because of how like this, it, it, you know, it, kind of the reality it portrays of the successive <laughs> uh, kind of rich society that is also completely <laughs> degenerated, you know, because mostly focuses on the Roman, ancient Roman elites. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a feast mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, almost for the entire time of the kind of there's there's some plot but I almost don't want to reveal it because uh, I mean there's some kind of I don't know some twist in it but ultimately just the kind of <laughs> the degenerate elites uh, of back in the day and how when you read it or watch the film because uh, Fellini was pretty um, close to actually the book to Petronius mm-hmm. you kind of have a sense like whoa so wait <laughs> first century Rome how close is that <laughs> And um, and so there's something I think timely again now the same way La Grande Bouffe feels timely about this complete sense of this degenerate excesses on where it will go no nowhere good mm-hmm. <laughs> in short and um, I and I don't want to be like a scold and I think Fellini not a scold neither is Marco Ferrari because how this guys kind of pull it off neither is Petronius is really funny and the book is hilarious is that you sort of semi kind of celebrate it. But you obviously describe it as like, you're just like, as an outsider, you like observe this reality. Mm -hmm. And when you watch something like that or read something like that, you still get definitely kind of a bit of a gag (laughs) reflex, obviously. But it's not done in this like moralistic, boring way at all. It's more just about kind of capturing the spirit (laughs) of of that, I don't know, that type of (laughs) life and that type of reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think now it's like not enough of that kind of... I think done in, in this fun way again, not this some kind of moralistic way, you know. Mm-hmm. That's why it's definitely on my list. Well, you have two feasting, two decadent feasting films. <laughs> That's wow, you have a theme. Don't people sometimes do um, double feature? I think you can combine those. <laughs> 
So, uh, okay. <laughs> now your turn. Um, gosh, let's see. Uh, um, uh, I'll go with Irma Vep. Um, it's a French film. Um, and you know, it made a little splash when it came out. I think it was 94, mid nineties. Um, but I don't know how well known it is now. It's by a well-known filmmaker, Olivier Assayas. I never know how to say his name. Oh yeah. Olivier Assayas. Yes, mm-hmm. him. Um, and actually, uh, someone else who recommended it, um, Daniel Coffeen, um, on the list. Um, it's, it really stays with me because it's a film that I kind of watched going, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, and it was only at the end that it had this colossal impact that I've just never forgotten. And it was so unexpected. It's a, it's a, it's a film that's being, um, somewhat darkly satirical about the French film industry itself. It's a film about filmmaking and it actually stars Jean-Pierre um, Léod, the guy who played the kid and then growing up in, in 400 Blows and then grew up through all those Truffaut films. Mm-hmm. He plays this director who wants to make do to remake a legendary silent uh, serial uh, of French cinema um, called Les Vampires um, by Louis Fouillard. And, you know, anyone who studies films now will know this and if they were hugely popular in you know the, the 1910s but you know otherwise you wouldn't know it he has this idea he's obsessed with realizing this but starring hong kong action film star maggie chung who at the time was at her peak just not only in beauty but in, in effectiveness on film and and nobody can really understand what he's going for but the auteur is king in, 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 in french cinema basically so everyone is going along with him trying to follow what's going on and on top of everything else he's having a breakdown so he's getting less and less incoherent the, the shoot is getting descending into chaos so there's all these kind of uh, cross currents behind the scenes happening as maggie chung you know it's kind of she's the outsider trying to navigate these waters um and no one knows what's going on and and how it winds up is the film is kind of falls apart entirely he seems to have a full breakdown everyone's like okay that explains it he was going completely crazy and then you in the end of the film you watch the few minutes of film that he actually got in the can and it's maggie maggie chung in Le Vampire was about um, a criminal gang that haunts the nights, the night rooftops of Paris. And they're these magical figures, almost literally in that, you know, they, they have almost like magical abilities to get in and out and to emerge from all sorts of places where they couldn't possibly do. And they, and they were, and they're really these luridly fascinating and erotic figures. Um, and one of them is Irma Vap, which is of course, you know, anagram of vampire who wore a cat suit and now I can't believe it, but I'm blanking on her name. Someone else would know and I'm blanking, but she's this legendary performer in this role. So anyway, Maggie, he, the director who's having the breakdown has had Maggie Chung on the, on the rooftops of Paris in a, in a wonderful cat suit. And that's what's in the final images in addition to scenes of her shooting power out of her eyes and her hands, if I remember, and it's it's carved into the film itself. So so it's in other words, it's scratched right into the film, the, the power that's coming out of her. And it just sounds like nothing. I can't describe it, but it's such it's so con- compelling about the incredible effects you can get off film that it was just, I just sat there slack jawed. It was so gorgeous. It was like the film you're dying to see. And of course it was never going to be realized. It was a couple of minutes of film. So we really did this guy having a breakdown really did have this vision and no one could understand him. He couldn't communicate 
Because and, and when you're watching it, you can't communicate. You can't go tell somebody, or at least I can't. This is why this is so great. People just look at you blankly. But that's part of the what's so incredible about film or can be. We get farther and farther from this every year as we watch more and more dreck. Like we have fewer and fewer experiences of just like the miracle power of cinema at its best. And yeah. this film actually conveys it in the last minute. So it has the most powerful cumulative effect. It's a, quite an extraordinary film in that way. Wait, so, and that sounds very matter, but what's very. untraditional about it, because uh, I, I watched the trailer and started reading about it, and I more or less like Asayas, but again, you're right, it's definitely a hidden gem. I never heard of this film by him. Uh, and it feels like it's going to be that the guy is actually not talented, and it's all sort of That's like what you're sham. thinking all along, that, that, that we're sending up the, the auteur system and the new wave guys, and it yeah. all seems to be undercutting them, and then you get these few minutes of film, and it and it upends the whole logic that's been going on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's unexpected. And But I, I don't know if it's a big spoiler, because I wouldn't know if you didn't tell me. Uh, well, I had to, because it was the only way to even begin to try to suggest. Because, you know, I was watching the film thinking, you know, this is a well-made film and everything, but I wasn't moved particularly. I mean, it had some funny And it seemed like a satirical, kind of like yeah, a, a comedy satire, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then, but then the end, just it was just like getting punched in the head it had such a great impact and i've never forgot i only saw it when it came out and it's been all these years and i still remember so vividly the impact of that film and i can't say that about many films um so that's why i always recommend it but it's a dicey one to recommend because if that ending doesn't work none of it's going to be all that exciting i don't think so that's why I'd say because it's like a setup, a setup, and then yeah. well, yeah. I mean, it's it's fine. It's interesting enough. It's meta. It's yes. It's in fact, it supposedly takes a ton from Day for Night, which is another Truffaut mm -hmm. film with Leod in it. And you know, there's all these homages and references to all sorts of French cinema insidery stuff. Um, fine, fine, fine. But that's not the kind of the film I usually give a shit about. Right? Like, okay, totally, it's yeah. like this description of a film that I won't love all that much. But this, it's so for me, the ending has this effect of throwing power, huge amounts of power back over the whole film. That's really almost unprecedented to have that happen. Last, whatever, two, three minutes, make the whole film. Well, wow, that's actually even structure wise or just, yeah, that's, that sounds very rare. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that yeah. that would, would really make the case mm -hmm. in the end of it. Right. You know, that's right. That's interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward because I, I actually almost happy. I, I don't think I watched outside of, well, I'll just name it because I saw it on your mm. list outside of Adwood. I haven't seen anything on your list. Oh, so really? That's, oh, that's wow. Mm -mm. So it's all new to me. Well, Adwood I like, but everything else is kind of definitely a hidden gem. I wasn't sure if I should talk about Adwood just because no one no one else recommended it. So I'm, I was kind of trying to lean to it. But yeah, we can get to, if we have time. It's almost like not a hidden gem. It's kind of famous. Well, it is, I guess, just because it's Tim Burton and it's Tim Burton when he was yeah. still great, which was a long time ago. And, and But it failed spectacularly when it came out. Oh. So it's not as famous as obviously Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and all the others. It, yeah, it tanked horribly. So that was, I, I was a little questioning whether it was obscure enough myself, actually. If you don't know who Ed Wood is, that film might seem like obscure. Right. But if you ever heard of Ed Wood, everyone, you know, it's like, you know, Tim Burton made that film. <laughs> I guess that's how in my mind it works. Right. Because Ed Wood was such a notorious figure for anyone interested in the film history. Right. The guy who's, you know, considered, you know, been called the worst filmmaker 
Baker were made for Plan Plan Nine from Outer Space. And I Glenn. watched that movie, and you know what? I thought I thought if he's the worst, he's the great well, worst. And director. that's the new take on him is that in fact he's some kind of a genius. He's just working with kind no of, budget. Yeah. He's got no uh-huh. time, no budget, no nothing. But he's doing great things with what he's got. But there's something captivating. It's not boring, which I think, I mean, it took me a while to get there because you would think it's a very mainstream idea Uh to say, oh, uh, what's important about film? It's not that it shouldn't be boring. Yeah, whatever. I guess, you know, a lot of sort of Hollywood schlock stuff can be watched. But mesmerizing is a good way of describing it. There's some some sort of imaginative vision (laughs) at work. And I kind of wish, I mean, but that's his... um, fate oh, if you believe in fate yeah that he was n- never appreciated for. and Ed Wood is about that it's very funny and very touchingly evoking that fate that he is <laughs> and when he at the very end he's made plan nine for I'm out of space and he's saying with great excitement this is the one they're gonna remember me for and it's because plan- and they did <laughs> <laughs> and plan nine for out of space is the one that they're always saying is the worst movie ever made and again it's just oh, it's whatever. just pretty good <laughs> and Glenn or Glenda if you haven't seen Glenn or Glenda I urge you oh I went no 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 I did <laughs> it's really wow <laughs> wow yeah so that's a just a great film, and it's got great performances. One of Johnny Depp's greatest performances, um, and you know, I think he's really inspired. Macdy said he was by Martin Landau playing, you know, elderly drug addicted um, Bella Lugosi in his in his final years. And that there's such a great pair of performances there that they just mm-hmm. seem to um, spark each other through the whole thing to like new levels of of you know, I don't know, both hilarity and a kind of tenderness. There's a real sweetness to this to this film that's kind of unexpected but lovely um yeah it was what happened to tim burton he was really good for a couple of years you'd never know it now but he really really was yeah well not anymore not for long (laughs) yeah but i hope i mean it's it's cool that i mean after all we did talk a little bit about edward we did by tim burton (laughs) but i i hope that will bring people i think it's at this point everything is online when i when i first discovered edward i had to like uh fish around like uh some video store where you can rent a vhs of (laughs) of glenn or glenda and glenn nine from the outer space and all that but now i bet it's all online yeah, and it's just it's just riveting that he would get these Z budget level little films and find ways in an auteur like fashion to highly personalize them and make them about himself, even though that wasn't strictly his assignment. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just it's it's riveting, and it's also a great film for being about collaboration and friendship in a way that's you know strangely lovely and affirming um and the best of filmmaking if you ever work on films they're usually agony but there's also what what makes up for the agony of sleeplessness and it's hard work and all this is you get or you can get if it goes well a real experience of comradeship that is is memorable and you miss when you're when you don't do it anymore and this film really captures it really beautifully Plus, great black and white film, which isn't so easy to pull off. Mm-hmm. And that's partly probably why it didn't do so well. Because um, oh, people ins- don't like watching yeah, it. Yeah, Burton insisted it had been black and white like Ed Wood's films had been. And the studio hated it, but they went along. And, yeah, anyway, yeah. did did pitifully. It cost $18 million to make, and it made $5 million, So that's pretty bad. It's not all about making no, money No, no, no. It does have a kind of cult classic Burton 
kind of stat. Yeah, and stat. he like, I, it's almost like Tim Burton did almost like a God's, what do you call it? God's work. He kind of like uh, really put Ed Wood back into the yes, into common parlance and, and revived some interest in him. Yeah. And you know, yeah, Ed Wood, even if he was like one of the weirdest characters and whatever his talent, I guess, is dubious. Like the fact that he was this like bigger than life or he thought he was bigger than life at two mm-hmm. writer, director, this yeah. had, like production designer. I mean, pretty impressive that kind of drive. Well, and that, there's, that a hilarious, yeah, there's a hilarious scene that references that at the end of the film where he meets Orson Welles. He goes into Musso and Franks and meets Orson Welles, played by young Vincent D'Onofrio, who was great. Well, stayed great, but I mean, he was really shockingly great when he was young. And they actually commiserate together, Orson Welles and Ed Wood, <laughs> over, over exactly that, how hard it is um, to work within the studio structure, but you mm-hmm. know that they're both these wunderkinds. They both write, direct, you know, they do all these production chores. They do everything. They're these multi-talents. And yet they've got to listen to suits from the front office who don't know anything. And it's a really lovely scene where they commiserate. You know, it's fictional. As far as anyone knows, they never met. But you, you wish they would have met. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. That's, so that's, that's definitely <laughs> improved hidden jam. And I, it's not on my list, but I have to mention briefly since we were talking about this kind of meta films about filmmaking. Like, it's not like I wouldn't say it's like a great film, but I think it captures really well. You probably watched it, Living in Oblivion. What it's oh yeah, like to I make saw when it came film. out, Living in Oblivion. That one. Yeah, yeah, and I think <laughs> it's made and written and directed by like Tom DiCillo. I don't know That's, if I pronounced yes. his name right. He's like a New York based filmmaker. And he really didn't make he he made some other films, but that's the that's his one actually real claim to fame. Mm-hmm. And I think it really captures uh, I was never really part of like the, this like real indie film production mm-hmm. when you were so you can testify to probably <laughs> the veracity of certain of certain um characters and sort of stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it captures it mm-hmm. rather nicely. Which I can't remember it that well. I, I think I, I think I felt that when I saw it, when it came out, all the way back in whatever ninety something. <laughs> yeah. And Steve Buscemi plays this um, a tour film director who's uh, making his first feature, and it's about the making of that feature, and it's actually just like where the side of the film. Yeah. And uh, the main characters are sure they're like the the sort of the actors who are playing who are, like acting in his film, mm-hmm. but really what we're looking at what is the sound guy is like. <laughs> Right. <laughs> what's the catering like what's the deal with it? yeah <laughs> whatever all this like behind the scene which which i mean it's really i don't know that speaks definitely to me mm-hmm. and um I don't know, Steve, and Steve was saying yes. it's actually it's great, hilarious. of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and you, whatever. I don't need to sell it more. Yeah, I think right. it's, it's a pretty fun film. Okay, let me. Yes, you pick one. Yeah, most of the films, even on my short list, they're tend toward even if dark, but comedy. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's. Yeah. I don't know. That might be just the mood I was in last week. Now I'm really going to, I think, introduce a real hidden gem, which I bet no one knows. There's this filmmaker. He was a Soviet filmmaker. He's dead by now. Elam Klimov. Mm -hmm. That a lot of people know because he made Common Scene. Yes. That's that's like his big hit, Mm -hmm. uh, even like internationally. But his first film, I was really surprised. I watched it a number of times and um, it's his first feature comedy. He made right out of graduating or it was almost like a thesis film expanded into a feature when he went to film school, the, the 
whatever we had one major film soviet school in mm-hmm. moscow and uh, this movie in english would be called welcome or no trespassing mm-hmm. and you can you can see he's like immensely talented mm-hmm. and uh what's i think kind of why i considered a hidden gem first of all I, I loved the film before even knowing he made it like because i i, I just thought it's some kind of like cool stuff as comedy and then i realized it's like actually smarter and deeper than i thought mm-hmm. when i first watched it as a young, like literally almost a child because um uh okay uh <laughs> the, the thing with it it's almost was banned but he was lucky because um khrushchev who i think his people or whatever the censorship how it worked just kind of was moved <laughs> out of power it was like 64 i think 64 and then the next the next guy while it was like the power was changing uh it somehow went through and so it was actually screened mm-hmm. <laughs> even i think whatever i don't know how widely but it was definitely movie theaters and basically got its release and that's that's why it wasn't tv in Soviet Union, so it was never banned. But uh, it is pretty controversial because what he did is that it's like seems like just like a light comedy about a Soviet children's um, camp, summer camp. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, when you really at least look at it and watch it as an adult, yes, it is a fun comedy about children's summer camp. Mm-hmm. But it's it 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 does this like pretty direct uh, comparison, whatever metaphor of like this children's summer camp as Soviet Union. And, mm. <laughs> and he satirizes uh, kind of fairly brutally, but ultimately he's not necessarily, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to put it. Like, I don't think he was necessarily like a dissident or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously he was critical of powers, but I, I'm, I'm not sure where he stands like politically, but obviously he was critical of corruption and all that. Anyway, and, and so he successfully could pull off this, <laughs> this sort of reality while making a film about the summer camp and uh, just children main characters and all their uh, little escapades while when you watch it you understand that it's actually about just Soviet Union the children kind of stand in for just like I guess Soviet citizens and then the administration of the camp and the uh, camp uh, what is it the headmaster director mm-hmm. is potentially even might be like sort of like a Khrushchev character mm-hmm. who was still in power when he was making it so that's what's kind of I guess kind of particularly <laughs> somewhat radical about mm-hmm. it because it's not easy you know during Soviet times to make something right. all the better would go yes. through yeah, yeah yeah kind of like political but fun and also it will eventually even escape censorship so that's how you did it it, it couldn't be too obvious yeah. but then you know, I guess <laughs> somewhat like understandable enough. So that's uh-huh. that's that's the film, and 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 again, it's um, it's just funny and it's really well made. And for the first film, it's also very, you know, it's made in the nineteen sixties, mm-hmm. like something like sixty three, sixty four, and it's very avant garde. And and it's um, look, it's black and white, but um, obviously because I think you know, especially if you're a film student and he was just graduating, it's too expensive to mm-hmm. <laughs> to shoot on color, especially in Soviet Union. It was harder, I think, to get the colored, whatever, Kodak. So, but, uh, but yeah, but it's really, really well made. It's so, it's so hard to imagine. If you've, all you've seen is Come and See, the idea of Klimov yeah. doing a comedy with children. It's like, wow, I can't even wrap my head around it. So I really am curious to see it. Bizarre, right? <laughs> yes, wow. <laughs> yeah, so now I 
really want to see that one. <laughs> it's almost not fitting because he's actually a serious filmmaker. And he later mm-hmm. on, he, he did hit, uh, have films that um, the kind of Soviet parlor, you would say they were put on the shelf because oh. we talked once about it. It was easier to make a film that make it released because of the censorship. Mm-hmm. But you could at least make it and then it would be like in <laughs> limbo for the next 20 years. So it did happen mm-hmm. to him later, but not with this one. He was, he was kind of lucky mm-hmm. to have his debut yeah. <laughs> feature or whatever, right. first feature actually out and people loved it and he was so young i'm like almost jealous i think he was maybe like 25 when he made it wow and it's that's my recommendations do you want to yeah i'm actually just going to quickly combine two that are both from I, I had to do one from the hollywood studio era but I, I actually have two and i'll just mention one and then go on to the second the one i'm mm-hmm. going to mention is called the bandwagon i mean and Luke Thibault um, recommended it, saying it seems oddly obscure. You know, if you hear about great musicals of the golden age, of especially of MGM production of musicals in the in the classic studio era, you know, you usually hear about American in Paris and Singing in the Rain, but you might not hear about Bandwagon. The only reason I'm being abbreviating this one is I, I was looking up best musicals lists, and all of a sudden it's on all the lists. I think it used to be obscure, and now people have really discovered it. It's a it's a Vincent Minnelli musical, I'll just say that, and he's always worth watching. He did Meet Me in St. Louis, he did American in Paris, he did a number of others, mm-hmm. um, because he always brings a kind of adult melancholy to even to musicals, um, which helps give them a kind of richness and depth that a lot of musicals don't have. A lot of people hate musicals because it's just like endless no plot and endless singing and dancing. <laughs> but, you know, like I a good... A, yeah. Well, um, you know, but but Bandwagon starts on a very melancholy note. It's about it's about Fred Astaire playing a character very much like himself of singing and dancing star, but it's about him aging and his career is tanking. And which is amazing that Astaire was willing to play this because he was aging now visibly. And, you know, he maybe his career wasn't tanking, but it, couldn't go on much longer. So it's a kind of bold. Just too close. Too yeah, close too close to, to comfort. If you know what the behind this is, his wife is literally dying of cancer while he's making this film. It's a very melancholy project behind the scenes. Every, you know, Oscar Levant is in it as a, both of, you know, as always, he's going to have piano playing scenes and he's going to be funny, but he was having horrible breakdowns. He was terribly addicted to drugs and it was just a very unhappy shoot. But but at any rate, it's got these melancholic themes of of kind of late career aging and what are you going to do and loneliness that are unusual for a musical. Um, so so that one just quickly. But again, it doesn't seem that obscure anymore for people who care about musicals and you know who you are because they're fewer and fewer all the time, it seems like. Um, but I really wanted to talk about another one. It's called Clooney Brown. It's it's Ernst Lubitsch. It's his last completed um, film. Um, it's an odd one. It, it's not famous like a number of his others, like, I don't know, what, Shop Around the Corner. Or, you know, there's a lot of famous Clooney Trouble in Paradise. Um, this mm-hmm. one's such an odd one that I think it kind of gets overlooked. But it's a nice class conscious one. It's about it's a send up of middle and upper class British mores and the and the and the people who are standing outside of it who are getting shafted by it. Um, it's a it's an early you know the, Britain is just about to get into the war, but the war is already raging in continental Europe, so it's also got that dark underpinning. 
which Lubitsch tended to want to go for. I mean, he did um, um, To Be or Not To Be, which is, you know, got Nazis in it. You don't usually see that in a comedy. <laughs> um, so he, he, was, he was totally ready to go for this. But anyway, so he's it's in England and there's Charles Boyer plays a, even though he's famously a French actor, plays a Czech refugee who's a member of the Czech resistance till they got overrun by Nazis. He's a refugee in England. And the English worship him because he's famous for being part of the resistance, but he they won't help him. He's desperately broke and he's tr- constantly trying to get the price of a meal, a drink, a place to stay. And everyone's so busy, you know, regaling him and praising him and saying how much they worship him that it's, it's all he can do to get what he actually needs to survive in England. So he's one outsider and the other is Clooney Brown, who's the daughter, I mean, rather the niece, sorry, of a plumber. And she is very into plumbing. And that's one of the oddities. She gets an almost, well, no, not almost. She gets an erotic thrill out of plumbing. And this is a forties movie. <laughs> um, so she doesn't know her place. Um, class, she has no sense of class status. So she, she just kind of rampages around until her snobbish uncle gets her gets her hired as a parlor maid, and that's how she comes into contact with the Czech um, the Czech refugee. And together, they're the two outsiders looking at middle to upper class English people who are clueless, who don't understand anything about the war, who don't understand anything about class oppression. Um, while they, the two of them, try to navigate you know their way along, and at first they're just friends. It's going to take the whole movie until they realize that they're kind of romantically right for each other so it's refreshing in that way too they kind of agree that they aren't each other's types at the beginning and they just kind of meet and help each other you know through everything that's deadly um about about british life um until the very end when they escape all together in a really hilarious um and wonderful scene and they get out they get out they get out of the country basically together so it's an unusual one and you have to do a lot of describing sorry to, to even try to convey any of it it's weirdly charming and very very eccentric so it's just not one of the ones that people remember, but it's just nice to mm-hmm. see someone just absolutely, especially at a time when there was so much Anglophile sentiment um, in the United States to see a Hollywood movie that's really shafting, <laughs> um, you know, the British, especially the British upper classes. So it's very, that's it, very refreshing to and see. And also for like, right as, as a musical, it's kind of oh, not this one isn't a musical. This one's just a comedy, like a screwball comedy. Oh, okay. the other Bandwagon's one. Okay. the musical. Yeah. Yeah. Bandwagon is the musical, okay. I just was trying to come up with crash together my two Hollywood studio films. That's all. Got it. Okay. Because I thought like, well, and a musical. <laughs> no, not that would be too much. Yeah. yeah, got it. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I haven't watched any of the ones so again outside of Adam. Well, I've watched most. But... Well, that's not true. I've seen on your list. I've seen Fireman's Ball, Citizen Roof, but that's it. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was all I won't talk about them. Then. <laughs> what about I want to bring a more musical kind of the weird? I actually I, I would I would state that uh, one of the weirdest musicals I think that just exists is this film Joe's Apartment. Oh yes, you t- and I thought I had the wrong one in mind. I had seen an animated film a long time ago that I thought was it, but it isn't. So now I looked it up, and now I realize I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Okay, no, no, there is. I think initially it started as a, a oh, is that minutes, what? Very short. No, it was like initially a very short animated film. That's the one I've seen. A feature film. Oh, so you okay. might have you might have seen like animated short. That's what I've seen. Yes. But you didn't see the feature, and that's no. where it's all at. The director and, and the writer of Joseph Bartman is kind of like a one film sort of guy. I don't think he ever made anything, which is surprising because I really think Joseph Arvin is, you know, the genius level of comedy uh-huh. and satire and I, I don't know, everything that can be great about the film. And um, also it's, 
if anyone, I think I, I fully started appreciating it after <laughs> we lived for a while in New York. And that's like the best film about New York kind of rental <laughs> situation mm-hmm. right. and uh, sort of also inequality <laughs> and what it's like to <laughs> be struggling there mm-hmm. and how you live and who are you up against, <laughs> who has power, who doesn't. And the weirdest part, again, since it's actually partially musical, is that um, one of the main characters of the film, uh, besides whatever like the, the, mm-hmm. the protagonist who is joe mm-hmm. that's why joe's apartment are the animated singing uh, cockroaches right, <laughs> right. So i think that's and you would i mean i don't know if it's immediately like a good sell <laughs> <laughs> they're like the main characters very very important to the story and just to everything and uh yeah but but they are and i don't know how i think that's part of the innovation something about them the way they're done they're not like you know they're not i guess uber realistic mm-hmm. so they're like animated but then ultimately they're not also like pretty up they're not anthropomorphic they are kind of like cockroaches who sometimes can stand mm-hmm. <laughs> but also they like crawl so that i mean they are you know rather realistic as far as you can go animation by uh-huh. wise and uh I, I don't know if i can go as far but it really i watched it a number of times and it seems like what it that's what they stand for cockroaches kind of are this real poor people of new york right who for some i mean okay not for some reason but they also talk more or less kind of rem- i mean sort of have ebonics definitely more or less that their way of mm-hmm. <laughs> their kind of linguistic thing which you know that that that's his, that that's his way i guess the director's way of expressing something but they're the most communal helpful and just sort of <laughs> have solidarity with both join with each other mm-hmm. and uh, they're kind of the people who like can band together and even potentially help you or like defeat some kind of evil developer mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying not to resell the plot right. because it would like reveal something but just like the uh, sort of the themes and the feel of the film which is really really bizarre and um and uh, i don't know it's such an inspired film that again just retelling the plot won't make it won't do justice mm-hmm. but uh it really captures I, I don't know any other film that captures in this really kind of both fun, but also realistic way, not without um, basically idealization. You know, usually films about New York, even the gritty ones, mm-hmm. not thinking about it, they usually have this sense of kind of elevating the place, mm-hmm. like, right? Like, even if you show something gritty, it's like cool gritty. I don't know, some kind of downtown or subways or some sort of this kind of industrial, <laughs> industrial grittiness usually has this idealized quality on film, in my experience. And in the Joe's apartment, it doesn't. It is kind of, uh, well, if it's ugly, it's ugly. Mm. If it's nasty, it's nasty. And uh, yeah, and so I think that's what I like about it. And it's clearly also written, it's it's a natural film written, directed by one guy, uh, kind of written from some kind of really livid, lived experience, right. which you can't replace with any, I don't know, has he been to film school? Because he's clearly like a one film kind of guy. Mm-hmm. His name John Payson. Mm-hmm. Another thing that stays with you, and I, I really appreciate that he did it. He satirized beautifully Charlie Rose. Oh, really? So the film is made. Um, what is it? The film is made early '90s. So clearly, Charlie Rose already had his show because mm-hmm. he has been forever in TV. Right, right. And uh, in that memorable scene, which again, not m- much of a reveal because whatever the movie is, so much richer than just that one scene. Charlie Rose is not Charlie Rose, but Charlie Roach. 
Oh, it's right. <laughs> who, but I mean, anyone who kind of knows, like, whatever, I guess this American, at least mainstream media would recognize it. And uh, he, uh, like, has discussions and sort of like talk show uh, with uh, a pigeon and a rat mm-hmm. and maybe someone else. Basically, it's like this kind of <laughs> very recognizable New York animal life. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> a roach, a pigeon, and a rat. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, that's, again, that's not a very romantic or idealized version of New York, but a very real one mm-hmm. if you if you actually really <laughs> live there. That's your daily experience, just struggling mm-hmm. to, to find an apartment, living in a tiny kind of shitty spaces and having encountering out you know outside of just humans just only cockroaches mm-hmm. <laughs> rats and pigeons right yeah so and it really gets a beautiful uh-huh. so that's definitely a hidden jam but it's yeah it's a great choice because yeah no one knows this one <laughs> this one is one you do not hear about so in fact i keep meeting every time you bring it up i keep meaning to watch it and then forgetting but yeah you have to so, yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the sinking cockroaches i mean what the hell but that works <laughs> It, it feels like, you know, when something really magically works together, not just as a sort of intellectual um, endeavor or, you know, this like film that is made for the sake of like some references or some film buff making film. No, this is not one of those films. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any references. It's a very kind of um, just life to film. Right. right. <laughs> it seems to be. Um, you don't have to have any film knowledge to enjoy it. Yeah. No, that sounds refreshing. Yeah. yeah. So what uh, What else? Well, I'm going to wrap mine up. I, 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 Unless is there one other you want to talk about or no? I can as well bring um, the very first Todd Salons feature because people know of Welcome to the Dollhouse mm-hmm. because it was like, what, a Sundance hit or something like that? Yes. And people think that's his first feature. Mm-hmm. But no, it is not his first feature. And his real first feature, which somewhere like available online, I managed to find it a while back, called Fear, Anxiety and Depression. Mm-hmm. And it's also like a, kind of like a new York musical, basically, mm-hmm. kind of dark, oh, wow. <laughs> sort of funny musical. I, I know that he himself kind of, I think, disappointed with the film. It, it was probably a flop, too. But I don't really know why, because when I just, you know, by accident, a while, like years ago, discovered it, I, th- I thought it was great, especially for the first film. And, um, you know, it's definitely in my hidden gems. It's um, also rare because um, in this film, Todd Salon's it like is acting. I don't think he you ever can see us. He can see him in his films, and he's young. He might be like around thirty when he made this film. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like twenty thirty, and he's sort of almost playing a version of himself, which kind of bit at first has like a whiff of what is it like oh he's like a new Woody Allen in town or something like that but no 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 it's not like Woody Allen really which I know you like early Woody Allen but it's mm-hmm. not like that as long as he has his own kind of feel to him and uh, so he's playing this young kind of loser playwright mm-hmm. in New York uh, who is trying to make his you know whatever to put his playing somewhere off Broadway clearly oh my like off off <laughs> off broadway mm-hmm. and to get some reviews and get noticed and get his career started and it's sort of like seems to be more of a flop and mm-hmm. I, don't, I think like critics don't like it and then uh, you know it's like a very kind of new york world he has like a friend who's like a hot actor and then his girlfriend is like a waitress uh, the girlfriend of a hot actor friend is a waitress who wants to be an actor and always has this like I mean, retelling it a fairly banal kind of this New York uh, boho scene, but because Todd Salons does it, it's it's there's something off. It's not, it's not banal. Ultimately, I think it's like weird enough that it has 
all the qualities of his later kind of masterpieces, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever storytelling, happiness, but obviously not like yet fully developed. Right. That it's not just like a, you know, like a whatever a first feature flop. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he himself is so down, down in it. Well, it's I think it's just from what I read, it's because he had such a miserable experience because he it was actually a studio deal of some kind, mm-hmm. of, and and he just hated it because they were he didn't have total creative control and they were just, oh, in terms of final cut. I didn't know. Yeah. So he just, they just tortured him or he felt he was just tortured and he hated it so much. He never wanted to work in, in Hollywood in that circumstance again. God, he's so full of shit from, from what I remember reading. He was um, one of those rare cases of being like a star student of NYU program with short films. Yeah. And he got, I mean, I guess that it was also the time when it could happen. He got a three picture studio yeah, deal. I saw from that. Wow. Which is, wow. Studio. No, I, I know it's not like he's, he's a true actor and he's not about like just fame. No, but money. that's incredible. He got the deal. His first film, this one mm-hmm. that, is a flop and he hated mm. Hollywood since then. Uh, okay, yeah, whatever. I guess he didn't have much control, but he was a very kind of lucky person, right, yeah. <laughs> a filmmaker. And uh, I think he pulled out of that deal, left away, mm-hmm. you know, Went didn't back home. This... And... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's probably added something to <laughs> to the movies he could make later because I think after his like feature and that pretty glorious three film studio studio deal, he worked as a English as a second language teacher. Wow. <laughs> Do you know about it? No, I didn't. And, and that's where the characters come. I think it wasn't happiness. Uh-huh. It was like a character oh. who's a teacher <laughs> who's teaching English to Russian immigrants. Uh-huh. I think he did that. Oh, wow. Yep. So anyway, but uh, I actually want to say that, no, I, th- I think it was a good film, mm-hmm. even if he wasn't hated it and hated Hollywood and laughed mm-hmm. and only came back, I don't know, five, six years later mm-hmm. with Welcome to the Dollhouse. So um, I, I think for not just his fans, for, <laughs> for just people who like dark yeah, I don't know. Dark comedy musicals. That is a good film. Yeah, and also very, very obscure. I mean, everyone just begins with Welcome to the Dollhouse. So that's... That's what... Yeah, that's exactly why I decided to include it, because this is a real first feature. Right, right. Okay, yeah. I think other ones from my list, I, I don't have to... Me too. I think I'm... I'm yeah. You're done, okay. right? Because I done. also, like, looking at your list in mind, even the ones I have, like Citizen Room, mm-hmm. it's not that obscure. So it's not that I don't like it. I mm-hmm. think it's actually probably better known than the other ones yeah. that I brought up. Yeah. Or even the Fireman's Ball, which is like early Millish Foreman. Millish Foreman's so huge that so people probably know his early films. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, do you have any kind of wrapping? Well, I just, you know, again, just to reiterate, we're go- we are going to post the, the list so that everyone can 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 read all of them. And thank you so much for everyone who contributed ideas. There were so many good ones. I, I'm sorry we can't just go on um, um, talking about it because there were really some terrific ones that I really wanted to see. And from many, many countries, we haven't we haven't branched out too much. Um, and, but there was lots of, you know, what Japanese and South Korean and there were just so many, so many good yeah, ones. That, some Russian ones too. Yeah, yeah, that I really would love to investigate. Um, I just wondered because a subscriber asked, um, do you have any any fast recommendations for Christmas or holiday movies that you like? That's a tough question because, you know, usually those are pretty bad. Christmas. Uh, but what's considered a Christmas film? You need necessarily some sort of like well, what, uh, Christmas tree thing? <laughs> usually it's got to have Christmas content, but now with Die Hard, you know, well, even that has some Christmas content. That That's a that's now a beloved Christmas classic. Oh, Die Hard is definitely Christmas. Christmas, oh so yeah, that's total Christmas. So it wasn't initially. It used to be it have to have had Santa and Rudolph and stuff in it, but not anymore. Now you can branch out. Like I would recommend The Thin Man, um, which is a wonderful 1934. You know, it's an early kind of 
screwball comedy um, pioneer, and and it and it mixes with a Dashiell Hammett um, a mystery. It's based on um, his book, um, The Thin Man, and it's of course brings together you know the beloved uh, teaming of William Powell and Myrtle Loy, and it's just it, it's all set at Christmas time, and it's very very funny, and they and they just are shit faced drunk basically. <laughs> this was right right before the code sets in, so you were allowed mm-hmm. to have your glamorous leads be drinking incessantly through the the film and their beloved dog Asta and it's just it's just a very heartwarming film for really representing as screwball comedy did a new way for couples to interact that was so and liberating have a dog and had a dog a instead of a child I'm all for it. yes I, I am too to me that's the peak of happiness <laughs> so yeah it really advocated for a whole new way for married well just couples to to interact that was really inspirational. Um, so that one's really endearing. I highly recommend it. Obviously, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation remains as hilarious and and realistic about life in at least the eastern half of the United States where there's snow and squirrels get down the chimney and stuff. So that one always stays great, but everyone knows about that, so I don't really need to go on about that one. So those are those are among my favorites. Actually, a pretty good Christmas film. Definitely not like a common mm-hmm. uh, eyes wide shot. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> but I know people are very divisive about this Kubrick film. I know that some people think it's self-flop and hated it, but I think it's the most honest film of Kubrick, and it, and it really captures beautifully this sort of because I think it's ultimately about himself, even though it's it's based on a short story. I forgot by an Austrian writer, mm-hmm. but uh, it's about this. You know, it's about kind of himself being a middle-class guy. <laughs> mm. who you know definitely saw this sort of pretty <laughs> corrupt decadent mm-hmm. hollywood uh elite and ultimately didn't feel comfortable there mm-hmm. so ensconced himself forever in in england <laughs> it is yeah and that's kind of my my reading of it which which i know there's so much like now or after he died because it was his like literally last film i don't i think it was he did the final cut and he was dead mm-hmm. even before premiere, right? And uh, there's so much conspiracy theory around this film, uh-huh. which is insane. But that's a whole different story. I don't know what to, to make of uh-huh. it. That he was killed because how much he exposed right. about this story. Right, the moon landing. and <laughs> You read about it, right? Oh, I didn't read the the eyes wide shut part. I, I've only heard about all the conspiracy theories around The Shining. But this is this is good. I oh, like Shining. No, no, no. There is a conspiracy theory around this one. Way he's more revealing too much about the... Yeah, yeah, and that's why they killed him. That's why they killed him. Yeah, <laughs> the kind of the, the satanic, uh, rich pedophile. Yeah, yeah, the QAnon theory. It fits right in there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the Shining one has um, conspiracy theory around what it actually. The moon landing that supposedly Kubrick helped them fake the moon landing. <laughs> Oh, right. Well, that's okay. <laughs> that's that's almost like a whole different yeah, level. Yeah, it is a whole level of madness. That is flattering if you're just not just like a cult filmmaker or whatever, but also all this conspiracy. Yes, it is. It's the like a, some sort of ultimate tribute. <laughs> you're, you're enmeshed in the highest levels of power. <laughs> yeah. That's why you transcend. You're not just like in film yeah. or whatever, like film news. This is <laughs> way bigger. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're way more important than the average, you know, great director. That's nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and he's like definitely one of the <laughs> top ones, whatever you think of his other films, just because of the, <laughs> just the stories <laughs> yeah. that uh, emerged after his death. Almost, and, yeah. and they still, they still live today. And sometimes they start re, definitely eyes wet shot one, once the, um, 
what's his name? The guy who hanged himself, supposedly hanged himself <laughs> in jail. What's his face? Well, how come we have forgotten? Uh, we did a whole episode. Uh, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Once that happened, definitely there were a few more articles about Ida White shot. Uh-huh. It's like, yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> he knew of that Emmett Kubrick. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, the movie made in 2000. Yeah, you know? yeah. So or whatever, 99, 2000. <laughs> so there is a lot of a lot of that. But uh, but actually now I think I might rewatch it just for the Christmas Eve. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? It's a Christmas movie. Eyes wide shut. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, but okay, and now I think, yeah, so there's an announcement. Yes, um, big one. Okay, so I am basically, I'm retiring from FilmStack, but the FilmStack definitely keeps living, so it's not going to be like a, such a drastic change. Yeah, there'll be a, there'll be a, a, a new host coming on. We're going to do a little mm-hmm. reboot with a new co-host um, named Dolores McElroy, um, who teaches um, film. She teaches in the um, um, film and media department at UC Berkeley. In fact, she teaches some of my old classes. <laughs> there she's been a guest on film suck twice uh one of the first ones talking about the stardom and then more recently she she was on to talk about the movie shirley um about uh, the biopic about shirley jackson if you recall so yeah so she'll be coming on starting with the new year we'll be recording an episode on the 2nd of january so they'll there will only be a pause for christmas um and mm-hmm. then we'll be back but we're of course so sad to have this be the last episode with with Evgenia. That we we thank you for your service. <laughs> you have been great. Life goes on, and ultimately, as I always say, you know, like film sack, it's you know, it's your brand, and it will, you know, it, it's, yeah, I'm not it's going anywhere. You can't, you can't get rid of me. <laughs> But I think there's going to be different types of content. I'm going to start writing um, and posting to subscribers um, a kind of uh, short reviews that are going to be written in the old Exile style, for those of you who remember Exile. It's a a lot of freedom of expression that you don't get when you're writing for most official magazines. So that's going to be thrilling. So there's going to be other types of content mixed in. But yeah, that's that's kind of the general idea. But again, we'll fill you in more as we as we in the next two weeks. The holiday weeks, we'll we'll I'll post some written things that make this official. Yeah, that's cool, and and yeah, definitely subscribe on Patreon because that's going to be, you know, basically reviews for patrons. Mm-hmm. No censorship. Absolutely, there'll be more stuff for subscribers. Yeah. Yeah, and all like old school exile kind of style, which yeah, definitely very hard to find. Almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, okay. So that's sad. And uh, I don't know. What is it? Do people say happy holidays? I guess they had. Yeah. We're all forced to say happy holidays because there's a war on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Happy holidays, everyone. And again, um, taking off next week, but back again um, at the beginning of what we hope is an illustrious new year, 2021. Hopefully. Hope. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And fond farewell to Evgenia. And maybe you can come on and be a guest. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'll I'll definitely come on. (laughs) Okay, great. And why not?